This is Midge Raymond. And this is John Yunker. We're co-founders of Ashton Creek Press, and we're with SoFlo Vegan. Welcome to the SoFlo Vegans Podcast. We bring you vegan experts from around the world to talk about health, the environment, animal advocacy, and spreading compassion. It's our passion to help you navigate the vegan lifestyle by listening to the experiences of vegan influencers, doctors, and experts. Thanks for listening. This is the SoFlow Vegans Podcast. And now your host, Sean Russell. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the SoFlow Vegans Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Russell. And today we have Midge Raymond from Ashland Creek Press joining us. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you, Sean. Now, I'm excited to speak with you for a number of reasons, but most of them are selfish reasons. I, I've always had it on my to-do list. Some of you watched The Family Guy. You probably get the joke like, how's the book coming along? How's the novel? How's the novel coming along? I've been having that in the back of my head for the longest. So I feel like having this conversation with you is kind of like that, the coal underneath the fire for me to get it going and get it out there. So um, I'll be asking you a lot of personal questions that are going to help me on my journey. Actually, first, before we get into Ashland Creek, I we have a tradition here on the SoFlow Vegans podcast. I want to know more about your vegan origin story. Like how, what's your plant-based origin stories? What were those seeds that were planted to get you to where you are today? Oh, that's such a great question. Um, and I love it because, you know, I think everyone who's just starting on that journey is, you know, loves hearing about other vegan origin stories. So I'm super happy to share. Well, mine started, I became vegetarian about 15 years ago, and I had been mostly vegetarian before that, but not sort of officially. You know, I just didn't eat a lot of meat, didn't enjoy eating meat, didn't really have a much of a taste for it. And it didn't occur to me to like become a vegetarian until at a certain point, I just couldn't do another, you know, holiday. There's holidays in the U.S., as you know, are so uh, meat-based. And it just finally, I just said, no, I can't do it anymore. Because everyone was asking, why aren't you eating any turkey? Why aren't you having any of this? And stuff like that. So I just said, well, that's it. I'm a vegetarian. And actually, after that, I became more interested in cooking. And I did a lot more research and, you know, looking into foods and why people become vegetarian. And then I started to learn more about animal cruelty. And that then I really became on the road to vegan pretty quickly after that. And basically no eggs or milk. Cheese was very difficult to give up. That was the very last thing to go. But about 10 years ago, I ate my last piece of cheese and um, have not looked back. It was a moment, the, the moment I became vegan, it was one of those moments where I just thought about the dairy industry and realized it is so not worth it to have even a taste of cheese if this is what you know, it comes from. I could not abide the suffering um, just for, you know, a slice of brie. It was not worth it to me. So um, yeah, I've never looked back. I'm completely happy to be, you know, living a life that's, that doesn't cause any suffering, at least in terms of what I eat or what I wear. And while we're on it, cheese is a popular topic, yeah. especially within the vegan community. Have you since gone and tried some of the the nut-based cheese, the soy-based cheeses that are out there? And if so, like, what are some ones that you recommend? Oh, absolutely. And I think that actually really helped. And I just have to shout out to all these amazing companies that are making it so easy. Because I think, you know, for people who love cheese, it is, it's hard. It's, it's a taste that's hard to has in the past been really hard to replicate. And I also so admire all the longtime vegans who um, didn't have a cheese alternative like we do now. 
So Miyoko's, they have that plant-based, cashew-based cheese. Miyoko's makes amazing butter and they, gosh, they do amazing things. Um, they had a really good cheese sauce that I don't, haven't seen in a while. And I'm really disappointed because you could just pour it over pasta and make the most incredible mac and cheese. But Follow Your Heart makes the, my favorite Parmesan cheese. Miyoko's makes my favorite sort of spreadable artisan cheese. What else is there? Oh, Violife I've recently discovered and also Field Roast. They make good cheese slices. I recently found Just Egg, the folded eggs in our grocery store. And we have been eating little like eggy sandwiches, <laughs> you know, no, I don't want to say daily, but often because, you know, it's just, it's something that's so delicious and, you know, high in protein and you put on a little slice of vegan sausage and a little slice of vegan cheese on a muffin. And with this just egg, it's delicious. So yeah, I, I know what you mean. Vegans talk about cheese a lot and we talk about food a lot because there's so much deliciousness out there and um, food companies are doing amazing things. And I really think that helped me a lot, just knowing that I could try new cheeses. And I actually started a blog, John and I and a friend started a blog called Vegan Cheese Tasting. Oh, wow. It's at vegancheesetasting.com where we just, we'd get together and try every new thing. And this was when Miyoko's was kind of, when you could only buy Miyoko's online, we would buy them in huge batches. So it'd be like one shipment and we'd split them up and we'd sit and try them all and open a bottle of wine. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. And I've just kept going with that. And um, we review like any kind of new vegan product we can find and it's fun. Well, it, it seems like I stumbled on the right question then. <laughs> you, know, you actually have a website <laughs> addressing it. So, I mean, speaking of websites and speaking of like one of the main reasons I have you on here, tell us a little bit more about Ashton Creek. So Ashton Creek Press was founded 11, no, 10 years ago. And it had, so that was right around the time we became vegan. But at the time it was founded because we saw a need for environmental literature that wasn't out there in the traditional, you know, sort of big five publishing world. There, um, and it mostly was inspired by John, who wrote a novel called The Tourist Trail, which we published through Ashland Creek Press. He had a good agent at the time, and they were sending it out. Didn't get anything from you know the big publishers who didn't know how to categorize it because it's basically an environmental thriller. And 10 years ago, we did not see a lot of those out in the world. And the publishing world is getting better. The climate, you know, we're finally at a place in publishing where climate books are getting popular and we're seeing more of them. But back then, there weren't a lot of them. And so we just decided, you know, John decided, well, I'm going to publish it anyway. He's very entrepreneurial that way and stubborn that way. So so that's what we did. And then we decided, well, we should have, you know, a way for other writers to find homes for their books if they have environmental themes. And so that's how it all began. And we really had amazing luck in terms of getting great books with these environmental themes, animal protection themes. So it was clear to us that there was a, a real need out there. And so we've been going since um, 2011. That's great. I mean, and in terms of the books that you publish, I know you mentioned environmental. Um, what are some of the other categories that you focus on in terms of the books that you publish? We focus on environmental and are moving more toward animal protection and um, issues we're getting regarding animal agriculture, protecting animals, endangered species. So even though we still have a strong environmental focus, we're leaning more toward animal protection. That's kind of where our passion is. And it's also just because, you know, mainstream publishers are publishing more climate-related fiction, but we're still not seeing a lot of animal-related fiction. And there's just such an urgency about that. You know, we need to cut back on animal agriculture. We need to save endangered species and writers who address these issues. I just, we both feel that fiction 
can open readers' hearts and minds in ways that nonfiction can't or a news story can't. Some people just turn away from these stories because they're depressing and they're hard to listen to and they're hard to see. And especially when it comes to, you know, animal abuse and use, it really can be hard to stomach. But we find that readers are really open to a good story with good characters, including good animal characters. And so um, our goal is to publish, you know, animal themed and environmental fiction, not just for vegans and, and animal lovers, but for everyone. So that these issues can be highlighted, you know, in the form of a great story. And I find we both have found that that really opens people up. You know, you kind of learn about these issues very subtly. John and I have both seen it with our novels, you know, just the people, you know, they may give up eating seafood when they see, you know, through a work of fiction, how much, you know, marine life suffers due to overfishing. So it's things like that, that really, um, that we were hoping to get out into the world and make it a part of everyone's consciousness. And that's fascinating that you're focusing on the fiction side of it. And you touched on it a little bit with what you just said, but let's, I would love to go a little bit deeper into that, why you decided to focus on the fiction and not incorporate the nonfiction. Yeah, thank you. That's a great question. And we do have some nonfiction. You know, we published, recently published a book called Saving Animals. It's called, and the subtitle is A Future Activist Guide. And it's by um, an Australian woman who runs a, a hen rescue. So she's an animal rescuer. And she wrote this book to help inspire young people to go vegan, to avoid animal use and abuse in every aspect of their lives. And not only that, but to sort of, you know, become activists themselves and teach other people. And then we published a collection of essays who, from another Australian writer. But fiction is really where our passions lie because we're both fiction writers and it's also a way into these issues that's a little different. And the fun thing about fiction is that we can publish genres that appeal to everyone. So we've published romantic comedies with vegetarian, vegan themes thrillers, literary novels. So there's really no, you know, no limit to what you can do in the fictional world, especially if you want to bring these issues to light. And now I want to go a little bit into someone who may be listening to this and saying, okay, yeah, I have an idea for a book or I'm writing a book. What's the process for you selecting people to be published by your company? Great question. So we have, we're so small. It's just the two of us and, you know, the freelancers that we hired to get the books out into the world. And we're fortunate we have a wonderful publicist now, which is a treat for us. But it, because we're so small, we have submission periods only open at a select times of the year. So right now we're closed to submissions except for our Siskiyou Prize. And um, what that is, it's an annual award for um, a book of environmental fiction or nonfiction. And you submit it and we choose finalists. And then we have a judge who is a vegan novelist and fiction writer, and she will choose the final, the winner basically. I would say for any writers to look at our website, check out what we publish, sign up for our mailing list, and just keep an eye on when we're going to be open to submissions. We publish, also published a short fiction series called Among Animals, and we recently had a submissions for short stories, which we don't often do. We always publish book-length works, but that was kind of a nice opportunity for people to submit short stories to be published in this anthology. So yeah, we're open for select times of the year, just because if we were open all year, it would we would drown in all the reading. So I would say, yeah, just keep an eye on, on what we're up to and um, submit when we're open to submissions. So we're going we're gonna to go back a little bit, back into time. And when did you first discover your love for reading and writing? I was extremely young. And just since I could remember, really, um, for one, I'm not strong in all areas such as math, forget about it, um, science. 
eludes me unless there's a story attached to it. So I really just, I related to storytelling in terms of being a reader and also, you know, how I would express myself artistically. I can't draw, I can't sing, like I virtually have no talents, but I can put words together. So, so it's partly just the lack of having any other skills or talents whatsoever, but also just being really, really drawn to reading and writing. So ever since I was little, that's what I've been drawn to. And then of course, I was curious about a lot of things in school, studied psychology, studied journalism. Once I realized, you know, I actually had to go out and get a job and no one's going to pay me to sit around and write stories. So with that in mind, I explored a bunch of different options um, and eventually worked in publishing. So when John and I started Ashland Creek Press, it was we had both worked in publishing in New York and in Boston. And by the time we found we founded Ashland Creek Press, we'd both had a lot of experience to put it all together. I was in the editorial side and he was more in the marketing side and he's also technological so he could do our ebooks and and stuff like that and create our website. So together we managed to, you know, just be, we call ourselves a, a publishing empire as a joke, <laughs> but we, we somehow really do um, pretty well managing it all ourselves. Um, together, we are not too bad in terms of the skills and talents that we have. And, you know, you, you dropped a little, a few gems in there in terms of like tidbits and advice, but I would love to get your thoughts for anyone out there who maybe their submission period is closed, you're not taking any, but they still want to get it out there. What is some advice for those individuals in terms of getting their books published? Oh, absolutely. I would suggest subscribing to Poets and Writers. It's a nonprofit organization that publishes an amazing magazine that comes out six times a year. Uh, we still get it and I've gotten it for some 20 plus years. It's a really wonderful publication where you not only can look for submission opportunities in terms of you know where to submit a short story, where to submit a novel, but they also, it, you just learn about the industry and you hear from writers and their processes and their struggles. It's, it's really a really great magazine. I also would suggest signing up for the free newsletters of publications such as Publishers Weekly. They send a free newsletter about the industry. So you can just learn about, you know, what the trends are, who's publishing what. You learn a little bit more about the, the big publishers and the small publishers, as well as, you know, kind of you never know what they're going to be looking for, but you can just learn a little bit about the industry and um, who the players are. And that shifts all the time. So it's kind of good to keep up on that. There's another great resource called publishersmarketplace.com. And if you are actively looking for an agent or a publisher, that's a they have a portal that you can subscribe to for $20 a month. And then you can have access to all the information you need to find an agent or a publisher. You know, what they're looking for, how to contact them, etc. And is it important to have an agent um, when you are looking to get published? Like, what is the advice? Like, why would somebody want to have an agent? Yeah, a literary agent is necessary to get a into the big five publishers. You know, so if you wanted like one of the one of the big five publishers, such as Random House, Simon and Schuster, etc. But and they have many, many imprints. It's almost impossible to keep track of all that. So you would need a literary agent because that's the only way they accept submissions. And some of the smaller presses only accept agented submissions as well. But the really small presses and even some of the mid-sized small presses don't necessarily need, you know, accept only agented work. So for example, you don't need an agent to submit to us, but we do get a lot of agents submitting to us. 
you know, we accept both. And I think that's really nice. I don't think that will ever change because it can be really challenging to find an agent. And I understand why it's necessary for the big five publishers. You know, for one, they're huge. Their contracts are confusing. You know, it's it's a much bigger process. But with a small press, you know, it's usually a smaller team. The contracts aren't as complicated. So they don't necessarily need to go through that extra layer. So, yeah, so Poets and Writers is really good is a magazine because you'll learn more about that as you read it. They also, if you just go to PW.org, you can get a huge amount of information, you know, without subscribing and a lot of resources on how to find an agent or a publisher. So, yeah, I would say discover how you want to publish and then you'll know your next step. So if you really have a commercial book like a thriller or a mystery or a you know, a really romancy romance novel, that would be a good fit for a, you know, a big publisher. But if you have a short story collection or very literary work or something that's just really quirky and you're not sure how it would fit in, you know, on the bookshelf at your local bookstore, then a small press might be a better idea. So it's, it's something about figuring out once your book is ready, figuring out who's my audience and how do I reach that audience. So right now, what is the landscape of books in general, because I know over the last couple of years, I've seen things change. I've seen borders and Barnes and Nobles, whatever, you know, come up and go down. Like, where does it stand right now? Well, you know, where it stands right now could be totally different in a few months. It, you're so right. It has been changing so much, especially with the closure of bookstores. Um, and the recession about 10 years ago didn't help. You know, pandemic hasn't helped. So a lot of the issues that booksellers are having and that readers are having, too, is that everything's going online. So if you have a beloved bookstore, one thing I would just say is support your beloved bookstore because they do a really good job of hand selling books. And so, yeah, the landscape has changed in terms of how books are sold. A lot of more of it is online. Ebooks are um, popular, but they haven't taken over print. Audiobooks are extremely popular nowadays. I feel like, you know, a lot of more people, they listen to books instead of reading them. And so that's interesting too. That's an interesting shift as well. I think the need will never go away for people wanting a good story. I do think that, you know, all the streaming channels out there and our devices are taking a lot away from books, which is difficult. It's harder to compete with all that now as writers. I do feel as though fewer people are reading, but book sales have actually been pretty robust in the last couple of years. You know, even though the pandemic has made retail really hard for a lot of, you know, brick and mortar stores, a lot of people are reading because, you know, they're at home, they have more time, they can't do their usual things, their usual social things or their usual travel. So um, books have done okay over the last couple of years. And I hope that trend continues. We want to hear from you. Visit our website to ask a question, leave a comment, or tell us how much you love the show. We'll play some of your messages during the episode, as well as directly to our guests. So be sure to leave your name and city and visit SoFloVegans.com slash podcast. I mean, I will say that I consume a lot of books, but I do it through audiobooks. Yeah. Now, I've always felt like there's a little controversy with audiobooks. Are, are you really reading an audiobook? So I just am curious to kind of see where you stand with audiobooks in terms of, you know, versus like actual books. 
That's a great question. I actually, I had, I kind of thought about this a lot when eBooks came out too, because I'm such a print book person, which sounds a little contradictory for an environmentalist, but, um, but I do use my library a lot, you know, and if, if I have a book that I don't need to keep on my shelf forever, I will, you know, I will pass it on, but yeah, I love print. But I have embraced ebooks a little bit because there are some books that I want from the library that aren't available in print. They only have the e version. So I'll get them. And I, I've realized it's not so bad to read on my little device, you know? So I've, I'm coming around to that side. Audiobooks, absolutely, they're reading. It's weird. I don't do it a lot because. I'm not a great multitasker. And if I'm sitting there um, experiencing a book, I kind of like to read it. Um, I'm a visual person that way. And I have, you know, listened to audiobooks on road trips or if I'm cooking something, I'll, mm -hmm. I'll listen. But it's a little hard for me to focus because I'm distracted. So I, I prefer print for that reason. But for us at Ashland Creek Press, we recorded a few audiobooks just to make them available, you know, to the readers who might want them just because so many people prefer that. We do find sort of generally speaking that people have their ways of reading, you know, like you prefer audiobooks, And I've met people who only read eBooks, you know, they don't like hard copies of books. And so we really, you know, as, as publishers, we have to try to meet those people where they are, meet those readers where they are, however they prefer to, to get their books. So they're all valid, I think. And they're all, I, I experience audiobooks really differently, but that I think that's just me. I think a lot of people really enjoy listening to books. And then I think, I mean, you talked about it, but I feel like that also kind of plays into like your learning style, you know, if yeah. you are more of a visual person or more auditory or kinesthetic, it's, you know, I think a book kind of hits all of those marks, but an audio book, like for me, it, I can almost only multitask. <laughs> So it's like being able to listen to the book and be on the computer and have a couple of other things going. I can rewind it real quick if I need to. But um, libraries, what is the state of right now in terms of, of them public? You know, I guess it's only really public, but um, how, how are, what's the health of that? You know, I think it probably depends a lot on the on the community. I think it's very local. You know, our local libraries had a few hiccups in the last few years just because of funding. And of course, a lot of libraries had to shut down and close because of the pandemic, which is really, really hard for a lot of people in the community who um, you know, need libraries to use computers or you know, for a lot of people, it's the only way they, they get their books. So I don't know if I can speak for libraries around the country, but I know for, for us locally, we're very, very lucky because our libraries have been opened. They opened really, in, on a limited basis where you could you could put a book on hold and then you'd go and pick it up sort of curbside. So even when they haven't been able, they were closed completely for a short time, but then they opened up in a, in a smaller capacity so that people could still get their books. And that was great for readers, um, not so great for people who needed to use other library services like computers, access to the internet. But I feel like we're in a good region here in Southern Oregon. Our libraries have been really you know accessible to us, which is great. But I know that a lot of people, um, they experienced longer shutdowns in their communities, and that's tough. So yeah, I think it's very community-based, but their libraries are just so important. We are such a huge fan of libraries, and they've really been supportive of our books, and we've gotten a lot of books into libraries. And, and I always tell people, if your um, book isn't in your local library, request you know request it. Just have, have a friend request it so it gets in there. 
Is that all it takes is to request it or is there other other things that are involved? No, that's really all it takes. And I've had that experience several times this year, just wanting books that, because we read a lot of the trade magazines as publishers, you know, and so they will have, we learn about books that are coming, you know, I'll read about a book that's coming out in three months or something because they do advanced reviews. And so I'll go to my library and it's not there yet, but I can request it. And I have to say, my precious, wonderful library here, they've never said no to any request. So I'm really grateful to them for just, you know, any book that I want, I've been able to request to the library. And I don't think it's just because I requested, I think they're probably getting multiple requests. So, and when they, they have several patrons who are interested in the same book, they'll go for it and buy it. So, yeah. And I think if what I can say to people who, who love libraries is support your library, you know, the higher the circulation, the more able they're they'll be to get more funding for the next year. And also a lot of libraries have foundations or friends of the library. And so if you can afford to give them a few dollars, I always tell people to do that as well, because that's a, a great way to support the programming that they do. But for libraries, a lot of their funding just depends on people showing up and using their services. And so really that the more we do that, the more so we're supporting them. So it's not that hard. <laughs> so you know, going back to the whole personal thing and me writing this book that I'm working on, I have some ideas of what I can do when I go to launch. But I know when I speak to a lot of people who are interested in writing a book, they kind of hit a wall once they are finished with the book. It's like, okay, what do I do now? How do I get it out there? You you dropped a few gems, you know, just even going to your library and having them da da da. da. So what would you suggest that they do or maybe point them in the right direction of once they've had the book, you know, what would be that next step? Do you mean in terms of promotion and getting it into? Correct. Getting it, getting into actual people's hands so they can read it. Yeah. Oh, there are so many wonderful ways to do it. There are, you can set up events at bookstores, of course, but there are also, you could have so much fun and do so much more. Bookstores and libraries are obvious and really great places to have events, but you can also get creative. So if your book has animal rights themes or animal protection themes, you could team up with a local sanctuary, have a big event there, donate some proceeds to the sanctuary. If your book is a romantic comedy, you could do like a happy hour sort of um, event at a local pub or bistro. You know, there's so many things you could do. Education is also a good idea. So for, um, for libraries in particular, a lot of times I'll do an event that's not necessarily necessarily just about me and the book, but it's something that can teach readers something. So my first book is a short story collection called Forgetting English, and it all the stories are travel related. So I did a lot of travel writing workshops when I was out promoting the book. So what the good thing about that is if I went to a bookstore or a library, I could also promote other people's books. You know, this book, this is a great book about China. This is a great book about, um, you know, the Middle East or whatever. And so, and then I could talk a little bit about my book, but also the fun part of it was it would be for people who like to travel and who like to write. So I would tell, I'd give them some hints for travel writing. I'd give them some writing prompts to get them writing about their own experiences. So educational components are always really great when you're promoting your book. What can you teach people and what can they come away with that's personal to them? So, but I think there's really no limit in terms of the types of things you can do to get your book out there. Um, we donate books as part of packages for fundraisers, you know, so if there's like a local organization that's doing an annual event to raise money, 
they'll we'll put together a book package with books and chocolate and maybe a little tea or some wine, you know, and just make this little package that they can auction off and the proceeds will go to their organization. And so that helps our authors because their books are getting into the hands of new people. You have to think, I always think it's better to think not in terms of sales so much, but as readers, you know, we all want our books to sell. We all want to, to make that dollar from our books, but readers are even more important. So if you can get your books into the hands of readers, they'll talk. Um, 50% of book sales are from word of mouth. You know, that's most of the way that books are sold. And so if you can get your, you know, give away a book, you might have like 10 people who hear about it and then go and buy it. So it's all good. Hey, how's it going? Oh, I'm sorry about that. I, I had a, uh, had a little emergency I had to deal with. Right. It's not a publishing emergency. Not it's a, something yeah, else. Not a publishing, personal. So I'm, I'm glad you could join us. And this is actually, um, I was I was segueing into um, another conversation about writing. Like someone is interested in, in being a writer, is it too late for them? But before we get to that answer, I would love to take, have you introduce yourself, let everybody know who you are, and then maybe a little bit about yourself. Sure. Well, you know, I'm I'm the other half of Ashland Creek Press, um, and I'm also a writer. And and to to talk to your question, it is never too late to write, uh, and particularly about animal rights. We all, you know, everyone in this movement uh, has has undergone a, a journey, and we all have our our stories to tell. And boy, there's a lot of stories that need to be told about you know all the animal species, all the animals that are that are under duress. So, I mean, if if anything people take take out of this is just if you have a story to tell and some something you're passionate about definitely share it and we're on the topic of stories to tell midge told us her vegan origin story so <laughs> you know what 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 is your origin story how did you start your plant-based journey oh gosh well if you'd asked me when i was growing up in st louis uh on barbecue and all kinds of meats, if that I'd be vegan one day, I would have laughed. And I think uh, my family still finds it a little <laughs> odd, definitely to this day. But no, it just, it, it's a it's a process. It, it, I guess it began with, with our work with penguins and seeing, this is going back many years ago when we volunteered to count penguins and to see the struggles they face due to fishing. And so giving up seafood was the first thing I gave up, which was so easy because I, I only even ate seafood because I was told to eat seafood because it was quote unquote healthy. And then that led to the novel, The Tourist Trail. And during doing research for that novel, I went to an animal rights conference in LA and you know, I met Paul Watson. That was the reason I wanted to go was to learn more about Sea Shepherd Society. But during, while, while I was there, I got you know, a fire hose worth of information and stories about all of the animals around the world that are that are that are being slaughtered. And I, I called Midge up that mm -hmm. first night, and that's when I gave up meat. I just say, I'm done. I'm out. <laughs> and and so that that was really the defining moment of my life, where you know I started. That was vegetarian, and then a little bit of cheese uh, I held on to, but we we I left that behind a few years ago. So yeah, that's it. Um, but I do remember that day vividly. It just, I realized it was all connected. You can't say seafood and, and not chickens. You know, it's just, they're, they're all sentient creatures. So 
And some of you we may have missed it because we gave mentioned an introduction at the beginnings, but we have John Yunker. Yes. We have John Yunker, who is the other half of Ashland Creek Press. That's who was speaking. But I probably said it in the intro and everything, so you probably know what's going on here. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so we've covered a lot of ground. I mean, I feel like people listening to this right now are probably taking notes and they're looking to get that book off the ground or, you know, get it marketed and pushed it out. What would you, and this question is for the both of you, what would be your, let's just say the top three bits of advice you would have for someone who's at the beginning of their journey, the beginning of wanting to write a book that's focused on the environment, focused on animals, what would you want to leave with them? Well, well, one thing that comes to mind for me is, and this is in this book we put together called Writing for Animals, and it's something that I started doing years ago here in Ashland because there's we have deer, local deer here. Uh, we're, we're in the middle of nowhere, a lot of forests around. And some of the residents, the newer residents, wanted them killed because they're a nuisance, they thought. And so I started writing letters to the editor as a deer and writing mm-hmm. from the perspective of a deer because this was the voice I felt was not being heard. And what was funny is people started writing back to the newspaper writing to the deer. And so what began, what, what happened was this dialogue with this Ashland deer. And since then I've shared this story and I've even shared the letters and anyone can contact us. I'll, I'll send you copies of the letters in word. And people are now adopting animals in their towns and writing letters to the editors uh, f- from the perspective of their animals, uh, birds, deers, coyotes, wolves. Uh, and, and it's such a simple thing, it's, and, and, but it can be really powerful. And it's a way to just start writing and, and just get something out there and feel like you're making a difference. So, uh, you know, while a novel is, is something I think so many of us aspire to do, they, those take a lot of work. <laughs> but a letter to the editor is something we, we can all do in, in a day. Absolutely. I, I agree that that it's even if you have a novel in you writing shorter pieces, for one, it's, you know, your novel could take five years, could take mine took 10 years. You know, it could take a long time. So there's a little bit of instant gratification in writing a shorter piece. But also what a lot of publishers and agents look for is previous publications. So it's nice if you can have that under your belt. And it's just the experience of it as well. But as John said, I love the idea of advocating for any animal that may need us, because a lot of people don't put themselves in the, in the shoes of the, in the paws and the hooves of the animals, you know, and when John did that, I do remember those reactions were so great. They would literally write back, dear Ashland, dear, and they'd speak to this animal mm. in a way that, you know, we didn't hear when we went to the city council meetings, they were not treated with any respect at all. They were not spoken of with any respect, but that giving, you know, lending, I, I think we like to say transcribing the letter for the deer, right. you know, we can't speak for them, but we can help get their stories heard, I guess. Yeah. So that's a great example of, of a nonfiction. Um, and the writing for animals, our book led to a course, um, which is we do it. We've done it live. I think three times this year. Mm-hmm. And now we have an online version for anyone who wants to do it self-paced. They can just do it in their own time. But that sort of offers examples and ways to write for animals, whether you're writing a novel, you know, or whether you're writing sort of an advocacy piece like John was talking about. There are so many subtleties there, such as how to write authentically in an animal's voice, 
how to use the pronouns he, she, they instead of it when mm. writing about animals. So there's a lot to think about. But I think, Sean, maybe you're talking about more general writing advice. And I could say for all top three is write, write and write, <laughs> you know, but if I were to vary it a little, it would be write. Also read a lot, especially books that you like and books that, you know, you admire, books in your genre, you know. So if you if you want to write a thriller, read a lot of thrillers and what else? And learn about publishing, because I think having all that experience behind you as you look for an agent or as you look for a publisher will really help you know what to expect. Because, you know, we were talking about promotion earlier and in our experience, both as writers and publishers, you know, you get the book, it comes out, it's published. That's like the beginning. And a lot of writers think it's the end. It's actually everything's just beginning where you have to find your audience and find your readers. So being prepared for that is is helpful to writers, I think. And, and, and speaking of being prepared, if someone what could someone expect if they do sign up with a publishing house, whether it's a smaller or a larger? I know it might be different depending on, but like the, the nuts and bolts of it, what does that entail? Well, it does depend on the on the publisher. So with a with a large press, um, you'll a large publisher like one of the big five, you'll get an advance, you'll get a um, you know, eventually you'll get a schedule for your book when it's coming out. With a smaller press, you may not get an advance. Um, the good news about that is you'll get royalties immediately. So with an advance, what that is, is an advance against publication. So say someone pays you $10,000 for your book, you have to sell $10,000 worth of books before getting your first royalty. With a small press, we often don't have advances, but we can, but you'll get, you know, the first book sold, you'll get a royalty on that book. The other thing you'll get is editing. You'll get um, at proofreading you know, copy editing, you'll get to talk about the cover, the book design may not be as much in the author's hands. And these smaller decisions are more fitting for a small press than a large press. A lot of the big publishers go through the process with, you know, because the cover is really a sales thing in a big publisher, whereas a cover in a small press with us, it's a more personal thing. It has a lot to do with sales, but we, we work closely with authors on covers. Not all the big publishers do, but yeah, you get the editing, you'll get the, the cover, you'll get a marketing plan. What am I missing? Anything? Gosh, just, just, I think the, the key for writers is to be really supportive and, you know, be very collaborative. It's a collaborative process, whether you're working with a big press or a small press. There's a lot of people involved that want your book to succeed. And sometimes that takes a little flexibility. Maybe they have a suggestion for the book title that you hadn't imagined and there's give and take. And maybe they'll, they ask you to do some guest articles and you need to be eager to do that and, and quickly because that helps promote your book and, and everyone wins. And also, I think most importantly is having a long, taking a long view. And I know small presses particularly us, we're, we remind our authors that it can take years to really find your audience. And we have books that have been published for five years plus where they're selling better now than they were the first year. Bigger publishers sometimes give up on books more quickly because they're publishing so many books per year. For smaller presses, we, we do take a longer view because we, we have to. So when you, when you go to publish a book, when your company goes to publish a book, does the author have to, are there any fees or anything that they have to pay for that? Or is that part of the deal that you guys cover the editing and all that stuff? 
Absolutely. Yeah, we're we're small, but we're we work as a traditional publisher does, which is that we pay the authors, they pay nothing. You know, they might cover their own travel expenses if they want to do a book tour, stuff like that, but that's their decision. Um, we don't charge anything for anything that we do. The authors get paid. There are some presses, um, they're known as hybrid presses, where so there's tiers of the kind of categories, I guess you'd say, of publishing. You'd have a traditional publisher, which could be big or small, and that's like us, we pay the authors. Then you can have self-publishing, which is where you do everything yourself. Um, you have to hire your own editors, you have to do your own cover, everything you do yourself, but then you keep all the money yourself. So that's that's that, very entrepreneurial way to go. Or the hybrid press is, is a type of publisher that provides all the editorial and design and, and artwork, but you pay quite a bit to get all that expertise. You also get it the, yeah, exactly the way you want it. So, you know, in those types of presses, you're kind of the client. And the only problem with that model is that they make their money off publishing your book, not sales. You know, so for us, we we really work hard to sell books because that's how we we make our money and that's how our authors make make money. But with a hybrid publisher, it's just a little different in that the authors are the ones, you know, who are earning them their revenue and not book sales. The authors have to really work hard to get their books sold because it's not the part of the publisher's bottom line. And it can also, hybrid press can also get quite expensive. Um, on the other hand, it's a really great way to go if you don't have all that experience in editing and publishing and, and all that. They really handle all of that for you. So it's not a bad way to go if that's, you know, what you need. That, that's amazing. Like I, I learned something new today. I didn't realize that there were all those different ways of publishing. Yes. I kind of, I kind of, I guess I didn't really know because in, yeah. I didn't go through the process. So thank you for that. And, it, and um, it changes quickly. And it's really important for authors to do a lot of research because whether you, you do it yourself as a self-publisher, which I've done, uh, whether you do hybrid press or traditional press, the more you know before you get into it, the better. You know, because then you're just educated and, and you're, you can also find the best fit for how you want to operate because some people are more entrepreneurial. They, they want to have total control and others have, want to have no control. They just write and send it to a publisher to, to run with. So knowing that about yourself and knowing how publishing all the options out there is, is really important. And being a traditional publishing house, I'm sure you're you're extremely selective with the books that you bring on because you want to make sure it has the best possibility of being able to be picked up and, and sold. So, and I think I might've asked you this question already, but um, are there any specific things that you're looking for in a submission? So let's say the submission period is open, you have the contest. What are you specifically looking for to say, this is the book I want to publish? That's a good question. It's a gut feeling to some degree, I have to say. But uh, yeah. It is, it is. And we, it's, it's the writing, connecting to the writing, connecting to the story. And this is the hard thing about publishing, especially being a small publisher, you know, when we can't take on all the stuff that we get that as much as we like it, that we're so limited. So it's really hard. That's the hardest thing we do is to have to say no. And it, often we get good books that just don't really fit. You know, we don't publish books for kids. We don't publish poetry. There's a lot of, and we still, we get submissions um, that are, that are lovely, but we just, we can't really do them justice because that's not our, 
realm. So, so we do have to say no a lot more than we'd like, but it is, it is a gut thing. It's, it's about the story and connecting to the story. And it's such a personal thing. And that's true across the board with publishing, you know, finding the right agent is about having someone just feel that connection to your work. And then they have to go out and make that connection with an editor. And it's just so hard. It's amazing. Anyone gets published. I know there's a lot of books out there, but it's when you think about how many connections have to be made on this really sort of obscure on this, in this obscure way, it's kind of amazing. But yeah, so I think for us, it's, I would say the writing is the most important. And then if it has those environmental and animal protection themes, we love it even more. Um, we always talk to the writers before we publish them to make sure they know what they're getting into with a small press and that they're willing to do the work it'll take to help the book find its readers. Because we do as much as we can as a publisher, but the writer is always the best salesperson for their book. So go ahead, sir. Oh, and, and as writers, I think, well, uh, when I read a book that just blows me away or surprises me or uh, like the novel we're publishing in February, uh, My Days of Dark Green Euphoria, which is a, has a vegan protagonist, which by the way, first off is kind of rare still, um, but also takes, it's, it's funny. It's a very darkly hilarious novel about contemporary America, about eco-anxiety. And I just, I was so impressed what, with how the author made a book that deals with such dark issues hilarious. I mean, I was laughing out loud reading that book. You can't say, I want, you know, fill in the blank type of book. It just kind of came to us and, and we just, it resonated with us. And it's a very, it's a great book. So we're excited. Yeah. And this is one that came through the Siskiyou Prize. So this book won the Siskiyou Prize. It, you know, it was a finalist. And then we, Carol Adams was our final judge that year. And she chose it as the winner. She, you know, it's always tough to choose a winner. I don't envy our judges. <laughs> but yeah, so she chose this one as the winner. She felt the same way that we did. Like, who knew? Like, this stuff could end up in, in an adventure novel. And it's really a wonderful, <laughs> wonderful novel and a lot of fun, unexpected fun to be had in a novel about eco anxiety. And we as we are winding down the podcast, I want to end with a question about your personal taste, your personal preferences. I'm sure you you read a lot. Are, are there any interesting books that are you're reading at the moment that you would love to share with the audience? You first. Okay. Um, well, two books come to mind. One is, you know, an animal rights book that was published by a big press. I actually forget the publisher right now, but it's called Barn 8 by Deb Olin Unferth. And I reached out to her after reading it and she's our Siskiyou judge, Siskiyou Prize judge this year, which was is thrilling. Um, she's a vegan author. And it was just really a great to see not only, you know, a big mainstream publisher publishing a book on animal rights, it's about chickens, but it was an excellent book. So that's an amazing animal rights book that I'm in love with at the moment. The other one I just finished last night, it's called Damnation Spring by Ash Davidson. And a very interesting environmental novel, not animal rightsy at all. So, and so some parts of that are really hard as a, as a vegan reader, but it was such a powerful environmental novel that's basically about logging in the Redwood area of Northern California, which is not far from where we live. So it was just really, you know, reading about this and the history it's set in the 1970s, the history of logging and, and all the conflicts among, you know, the loggers and the environmentalists. And it was told from the, the logging family's point of view. And it was just a really interesting point of view to read as, as an environmentalist myself, to get that perspective, I think is really important. 
And so I really recommend that book to, to all environmentalists because you have to kind of, whatever you're fighting for, whether it's animals or the environment, you also have to have some empathy for people who have done this work for generations and generations and, and how, why you're getting the pushback. And this, this book really made that clear in, in that way we talked about earlier, Sean, about just how novels can draw you in and, and get you with the story and present all these issues through a great story and great characters. So those are my two favorites recently. Oh gosh. And I'm still kind of blanking. I've read, I read a lot. Um, well, there are two novels that I, I just mentioned that I read, we read uh, for Ecolit books as well. And I mentioned them there and they're by Paul Watson, who I mentioned earlier, who is the founder of the Sea Shepherd Society. And one is called The Death of a Whale. It's a historical account of a a tragic killing of a whale, and and then he's got another book about the about the oceans. Uh, he's a prolific author, and he is he is uh, heroic in so many ways in terms of what he's accomplished and 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 what he continues to do on behalf of the oceans and and the whales and and its many creatures, not just in Antarctica but uh, around the Galapagos, uh, the waters off Mexico. I mean, their organization is you know, seeing people out there doing what they're doing and have ha having been doing that for so many years just gives me a lot of hope and hope it can be in short supply these days. But uh, those books will, will, I think, inspire you. And I'm sure you both have inspired a lot of people listening are either watching this and where can they find more information about you? AshtonCreekPress.com. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And I also would just invite people to reach out to us with questions. You know, I mean, even we're, our Siskiyou Prize is open till the end of December 2021. And um, I'm not sure when we're going to open again. But, you know, especially we love hearing from vegan writers. And if there's any questions we can answer or or any sort of advice that they have, I mean, we just invite people to, to contact us because it's one thing we've learned from our Writing for Animals classes is that there's so many people out there writing for animals, writing for a better world for animals. And it's so inspiring to us um, to hear from them. So we would just welcome that. Oh, and also ecolithbooks.com is a great resource. It's not just about our books. It's about, we've got a number of reviewers and there's a lot of really good books that get reviewed there. And then the very last thing I'm going to have you do, and this is how I like to close out all of the episodes is for you just to share a message with our audience. You could speak directly to them, something that may be on your heart. And you just want to share it with the audience. This is your opportunity. And then once you both are done, that will be the end of the podcast. You first. <laughs> I would say, don't give up. If you're a writer, don't give up. If you're an activist, don't give up. Just keep doing what you're doing. And I would say, what I often say is, write like you give a damn. You've been listening to the SoFlow Vegans Podcast. As you can see, our passion is to help people navigate the vegan lifestyle, having on vegan experts from around the globe. Sean is the founder and, of course, the host of SoFlow Vegans, an organization created to help make South Florida a global hotspot for veganism. Thanks for listening. We'll be back soon. But in the meantime, find us on Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube at SoFlow Vegans. Find the show and more at SoFlowVegans.com slash podcast. And for questions or comments, send an email to contact at SoFlowVegans.com. Our food is grown, not born. See you next time.